Chats. Midnight Chats. Hello, my ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Midnight Chats, a companion show to Noctivigant where we interview your favorite voices from the world of paranormal writers and researchers. As always, my name is Nick. I'm Rory. I'm Jay. On this, our inaugural episode, we are over the hollow moon to announce an interview with the man, the legend, the theoretical weirdo, John goddamn Tenney. And what an interview it was. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I had a great time. Uh, yeah, we are going to cover a lot of topics ranging uh, all across the board. Uh, demons, paranormal investigations, UFO. Uh, the the state of the paranormal community. I find an excuse to talk about Hinduism. The yep, nature of consciousness religion. and reality. Slipping around bored on a glass planet. A lot of good stuff. And just all around, like e- even with like uh, honest technical difficulties that we had, uh, nonstop great conversation. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's John Tenney. It's yeah. e- it's easy to have a great conversation with him. He is so ridiculously smart. Yeah. Featuring Murphy, the fat cat. Yeah. <laughs> and we also found an excuse to slip in our cat. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so I hope all of you at home are going to really enjoy this. I know we did. Uh, just to give you a little bit of a primer of what this show is, this is going to be a pretty sporadic show as we get people on. We don't want to fill uh, fill this show up with people who no one wants to hear from. I mean, I can find some crazy homeless people under the overpass and tinfoil hats if you'd like. If so, please email us at noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. Or don't. Or do. But besides besides that, this show will be coming out every now and then. We'll try to do our best to announce them ahead of time. However, some of them, like this one, will be a surprise. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for the gray alien, because that means we've uh, we've corralled one of them into talking to us. You're welcome. So uh, sit back, relax and enjoy our first ever midnight chat. Thanks, you, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, let's get started. All right, so I guess our first question, uh, and this was a thought that occurred to me as I was reading Theoretical Weirdo. Uh, one of the first chapters, you talk about paranormal books and how much they suck, and that is certainly something that we have encountered a couple times on the sh- on our show. As uh, a paranormal book club. And all. Yeah, so my question, first question for you is kind of a bit of a softball, but... Uh, if someone was looking to genuinely begin to learn about the phenomenon, uh, you know, the uh, John Keel kind of capital P phenomenon, where would you think they should start in terms of books? 
I think when I have these discussions with my friends who have done this for a long time, I honestly think that you start with what you were reading when you were a child. Hmm. Like I think one of the best paranormal books to, to kind of edge you into the world of high strangeness is the giving tree by Shel Silverstein. Okay. Like it's this man's relationship with nature and nature's relationship with man and aging and what it means to like give to nature and what nature gives back to you. I think as kids, we have a really insightful glimpse of the world of high strangeness that we get learned out of as we get older. And so I tell people like, start with the fairy tales that you read and the cartoons that you watch. Those are all the archetypes that you see over and over again in the phenomena anyway, whether it's a, a superhero cartoon that you watched growing up or, you know, uh, stories of even giant robots fighting giant monsters. Like there are arch archetypes in those stories. There are heroes journeys that, that we take as children. And I think we forget about that as we get older. No, that's that's cool because uh, we actually just recently uh, did an episode on Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée, where he compares, you know, folktale and everything to uh, to aliens specifically. But like going back and looking at some of that in a different lens, that's really interesting because then you would have you would see the parallels to even like modern day phenomenon to what they're writing about back then. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was super interesting. I'm I'm 50, so it wasn't quite of my generation, but I, I used to own a Japanese toy store back in the 90s. But when I saw like the Pokemon phenomena come around, I was like, oh, this is modern day fairy tale. Mm -hmm. Like these are people interacting with these fairy folk and like trying to catch the leprechauns. Like that's what's going on. Oh God, I need to reassess so many, a long period of my childhood now. <laughs> Same. Well, I read The Giving Tree, I played Pokemon. Oh God, this is how I got how I am. I need my, to call my therapist. My parents, <laughs> my parents would not let me watch Pokemon because they found it too annoying. It was one of the many cartoons that were banned in my house because they were like, we couldn't stand it. <laughs> you just, we told you it was bad and we wouldn't let you watch it. They're like, you were six, you didn't want an explanation. I don't have a good excuse. I just, I just liked Pokemon. So kind of to build off what you're saying then, I mean, is there anything you're reading right now? Anything that you uh, tend to read? Do you stray more towards nonfiction, fiction, anything like that? It's, it's weird because I also tell people to read almost everything. Okay. So if you looked at the books that were by my nightstand right now, there's some horror fiction uh, my friend Josh is a horror author. And so I like I have his book Goblin next to my bed. But then I also have this dictionary of like Latin to English words because I love etymology and I love reading just where words come from. Uh, but at the same time, too, there's also like poetry books. And I think the closest thing to a paranormal book that's on my shelf right now is I'm just rereading through like old magic books from the 1950s and 60s ones that you could probably order out of the back of magazines <laughs> but the phenomena is so weird and diverse like i feel that's really what we need to do as paranormalists is you know i always say diversify your weirdness and like i really mean it because you end up in these you know what people call rabbit holes but you end up taking these side journeys that really shape and form how you think about the paranormal and the supernatural well yeah and like a lot even like in terms of fiction it's like you said it's going to help shape the way that you think about everything one way or the other because 
in a lot of ways, those fiction writers, they had, they had that thought somewhere too. There's nothing that says it can't also be something that's associated with the phenomenon. And if we think about it, like, like Keel would, if when we, we put that kind of energy into it, that's probably how the phenomenon is going to come right back at us. I, I apologize if we mentioned Keel a few too many times. We started the show on the Mothman prophecies and he's sort of become this uh, ideological figurehead over a lot of our discussions. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I also do when I need suggestions for books is there are some really great pictures like of John Keel in his office. His office is just a disaster. If you've ever seen a picture of it, just books and papers everywhere. But, you know, creeping on his bookshelf and the books that you can find in his laying on the floor of his office. Like that's a really good way to pick up where Keel was thinking and what he was thinking about at the time. You find books on cosmology and folklore and sometimes too, just like weird, you know, he, he was published in a lot of weird men's magazines that Mm -hmm. wouldn't publish UFO stories back in the like fifties and sixties. And so you see that he's not reading those men's magazines, but there's like, you would never think of Keel reading like Sports Illustrated and stuff like that. But there must have been a story that sparked his interest in something that he needed to know about sports. Like we are very diverse human beings. And I think that when we I, I talk about this very often at my lectures, when when you get really kind of pigeonholed into like, I'm only going to research UFOs or I'm only going to research ghosts, I'm only going to research Bigfoot, you're in essence studying, at least in my brain, you're studying one tentacle of an octopus and missing the octopus. But yeah, when you think that like all of the phenomenon in one form or another might be intertwined, connected, if you if you stick to one one section of it, you're missing so much of what you could potentially be uh, researching, investigating, whatever you want to call it. So to build off that note, um, one thing we liked that we discussed about your book was specifically uh, the the period where you were talking about, again, diversifying your weirdness, um, kind of getting out of these rigid silos that the paranormal community likes to put themselves in. Um, and my question for that is we had obviously the state of the weird 2018 and 2019 in this book. Uh, since then, I'm. I, have you seen the paranormal community start to come together anymore, or is it still fairly re- uh, segmented out? It's still segmented, but I, I hesitate to say that it's gotten more open to its weirdness. I think that because of the bubbles created by social media, it can really seem like that. But if you look at Bigfoot conventions. It's still just physical Bigfooters. The majority of people speaking at them are Bigfoot is a creature that walks around in the woods. If you look at the UFO conferences, the majority of people are not really willing to go as deeply weird as the phenomena is. They stay pretty nuts and bolts focused on the government. What's the, you know, what's disclosure coming from these eight people who used to work for the government, which we don't trust until you leave the government. Then we trust you because you worked for the government. Like it doesn't make any (laughs) sense, but you know, the online, it does seem like people are, are more openly embracing weirdness. I just think that, 
throughout the past 30 years, I've seen the cyclical nature of the phenomena and it hits in waves. And right now we're in a weird wave and it'll get really, really crazy. And then it'll kind of crash. People will become super conservative with their views about the paranormal again. And 10 years from now, you'll see it come back around. That was actually something that uh, <clears throat> kind of surprised me when we went to Michigan Paracon. It was our first convention or you know conference of anything like that. And I was surprised to see how many people were like when we I would engage them in conversation were were down with the weird, you know. I expected so much more, so much more nuts and bolts. And that might have just been the nature of like because we were only there the one day. So that might have been just the nature of the people that were there for uh that day. But at the same time, it kind of impressed me because I was anticipating a lot more of that like conservative, nuts and bolts, hard, you know line in the sand kind of people. And there were some, don't get me wrong, but I was impressed by the number of open mind, like open-minded people that were there. Yeah. I think at Paracon it's good because Brad and Tim who put that event together, you know, for a long time, it really was just a ghost hunting paranormal event. And every now and then they'd bring maybe like Stan Friedman in to do a flying saucer talk, but, but not, you know, patting ourselves on the back, but you know, once you once you open up the door to convention and you have people like me or Greg and Dana and we start like really deep diving strangeness, when people go in here, just like a plain ghost lecture after like one of our lectures, you're you're like, is it the is this is just going to be about demons like these? There are just bad ghosts that are demons. That doesn't make sense after all this crazy <laughs> stuff I just heard before. And and Tim and Brad have been like, yeah, we need to really get open-minded people here who are flexible with their ideas about strangeness. So it turns out to be really, really kind of awesome. Like drinking a beer after doing some acid. The beer won't do much. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so you sp you mentioned, obviously, your 30-year career. Um and one thing I that we wanted to ask, I know I know you've spoken a lot about what got you kind of into the paranormal, but we were curious, what keeps you going? I mean, after 30 years of chasing the anomalous, I mean, does it ever get to feel uh, like you're chasing your own tail or anything like that? Yeah, I, I've hit periods where I've really just backed off and kind of lost interest. It seemed like I was just spinning my wheels, but I think, you know, with the phenomenon itself, that's just me. That's just how I'm reacting to like, it doesn't go anywhere. It stays strange all the time, whether or not I'm looking at it or not. But um, yeah, I've hit those periods of where I just don't want to do it anymore. I think the thing that keeps me going is I came to recognize at some point in my life, and, and this is what I forget, and when I re-recognize it is what kickstarts me, is how strange little things are. Like, just even the idea that, like, I see color, and just the idea that I hear sounds, that, it, like, I'll be laying in bed and someone will slam their car door, and I'm like, that's a block away, and I just heard that. That's just weird. Being human is absolutely bizarre. Like... The fact that I'll go and like throw a peanut on the deck of my house and there's no animals out there, but within 30 seconds, like a squirrel is eating that peanut. And I'm like, how the 
fuck did that squirrel just figure like <laughs> was it the sound of the peanut hitting the deck did i throw intention off when i threw the peanut that i wanted to see a squirrel and the squirrel psychically picked it up it's these little moments where i just have to doubt everything in reality and then i realize how interested i am in what seems to be our shared reality that's interesting i i do that that is something very similar it's like when i'm laying there and i hear something that i know is far away i'm like how the hell did i even pick that up. Like I'd normally have trouble hearing, let alone now when I'm laying here, all of a sudden I can hear the dog barking that I know is two streets down or, you know, whatever it might be. See, I think for me, it's, it's about the opposite. It's something major happened in the house and I absolutely was oblivious to it. And I'm once in there wondering, how did I not hear that? Like me laying in my bed, having sleep paralysis, shouting for help. And you're just, you're just doing Nick things. Uh, to be fair, I was actually had my earbuds in. I was listening to an interview with John Tenney. <laughs> I, I have sleep paralysis nonstop. I've had it since I was a kid. So the, the fear and your anxiety is shared. Oh, it's, it, it, it's horrible at our last, at the last place we lived in, I used to, um, I used to sleep on the couch sometimes if, uh, if Rory was, uh, snoring too badly and I needed to sleep and I stopped doing that. I just, I just chose the sleepless nights over going onto the couch because every single time I went out there, I would have sleep paralysis from the moment I fell asleep until the sun came up. Mm -hmm. It was they, horrible. They looked, they, they looked like a war veteran by morning. It was hilarious. I, uh, <laughs> I experienced it for the first time, like just a few weeks ago and I was trying to meditate and ended up in sleep paralysis. So that was fun. Yeah. I mean, and, but that's the thing is too, like with sleep paralysis, this is going back 25 some odd years. Like I was getting, I still get sleep paralysis, but I was getting it more back then. Uh, I think it was just anxiety problems, but like thinking about sleep paralysis and, and how that plays into the folkloric phenomenon of old hag syndrome and how it mm -hmm. plays into abduction phenomena and all of this stuff. But then the, this moment like of looking at little things, like I said, like diversifying how you think about stuff. I was watching my cat at the time and like I noticed that when he would do his like cat twitching when he was dreaming he was always like sleeping with his belly exposed. And then I realized that all my sleep paralysis always happened when I was sleeping on my back. And then I started like talking to people who have dogs and they were like, yeah, my dog, whenever his belly is exposed, that's when he seems to be dreaming the most. And so I contacted a friend of mine who's a neurobiologist and started discussing this idea about like is sleep paralysis like inborn in us to keep us from exposing like our stomach and heart. And so when we're sleeping on our back, our brain is scaring us, telling us like someone can get you right now. And so he started studying that and found all of these weird receptors and dopamine and serotonin drops that happen only when you're sleeping on your back that might be connected with sleep paralysis. So it came from me having sleep paralysis to watching my stupid cat <laughs> to maybe figuring out this aspect of sleep paralysis. It it's weird that you mentioned serotonin because the episode that I had this afternoon, I'm now thinking about it. I didn't take my antidepressant this morning. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. That I, is, I, I don't know what to do with that information, but that, my mind feels a little bit blown right now. That is, that is, that is fascinating. Thank you for telling us that. That is amazing. Yeah, that's funny because, uh, I mean, we're, I'm reading the, or I guess we are reading The Believer right now. Spoiler. Uh, for everybody who listens to this, but we're uh, 
reading The Believer right now, which is, you know, about <clears throat> the abduction phenomenon and John Mack and a lot, like a lot of, or, and I've also been, I also listened to another podcast that was about sleep paralysis and all of this is kind of coming together at the exact same time. The, in one of the chapters in The Believer, they actually bring up the old hack. Yeah. Well, that's what um, I was trying. Yeah, that's what, that's the point I was trying to get to, but words yeah. didn't come to my brain. <laughs> so I, I not to change gears too dramatically, but um, I, I we did have another question. I, we also want to ask about demons because we had a long chat about the the demons that you talk about in the book, or rather the uh, demonology in general. Although now none of us like to use that word, so thank you for that. <laughs> and every time it's brought up in another book, I, I I think about the fact that it's like, well, you probably don't actually want to be calling yourself that. <laughs> so yeah. we had actually a, a pretty big debate, and we were wondering if you uh, had anything to chime in on this regarding exorcisms. And what the, what were what we were discussing was okay, so. Do you want me to do it? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So I led the episode on Theoretical Weirdo, and by that, it means I'm the one that like did all the discussion questions and all that jazz. So one of the questions that I had posed to these two was uh, if provoking a demon can leave behind a negative resident, uh, a negative resonance, couldn't the same... Couldn't the same be said about performing an exorcist, but more specifically, couldn't trying to exercise something that isn't innately a demon leave behind a worse resonance, a worse resonance, or maybe even a worse spirit than before? Yeah, for sure. I think the the difference, though, is like, so I witnessed an exorcism in 99 the archdiocese of detroit asked me to go and sit in on an exorcism and so i went to northern michigan and partook part of an exorcism that was sanctioned by the holy see and the only thing that i can really to your question talk about is that i feel like for all of the failings of the major religion of of catholicism during the exorcism, it was such a, everything they were doing was so positively based hmm. that when we talk about like the intentions of things, like it wasn't like you see in horror movies, like there was so much talk about like love and hmm. kindness and peace and health throughout the exorcism. I don't think it ever really swerved away into anything that would even seem violent. And so like me being the, observer and then the priest and the assisting priest who were performing the exorcism, like everything that we were giving was all about like love and caring for the client who was having the exorcist performed. And the client was having this reaction probably to the love or whatever, or the caring that, that they were felt being used to exercise them. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I suppose it could leave some kind of, residual traumatic energy from the client themselves. But even in the breakdown after the exorcism with talking to the priest, he was telling me like when a person is flailing and kicking and screaming during the exorcism, that's be, that's not the demon doing that. That's the, the person's body trying to get the darkness out of them. So even their body is, is doing something to expel or destroy this kind of evil energy. Um, 
And I think that's the other part too, is like, it's not expelling it. It's destroying it. Like that's the other thing too, I guess, during the exorcism, there's a lot of talk about not going, like not sending a demon back to hell, but like, like the dissolution of the evil, like it goes away where I think when you see people doing exorcisms on paranormal shows and, and in movies, and even when people are doing deliverances at churches, um, it's about like, get out, go somewhere else, go back to where you came from. And in the exorcism that I saw, it was about like, uh, you're not, you're not going to be real anymore. You're going away. You're like this, like I said, the, the dissolution of evil more than like getting it to just come out and go somewhere else. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. So, I guess on the topic of these negative uh, energies or resonances, I, I mean, this again, this might not be a question that has an answer uh, out there, but do you think there is any sort of expiration date on those? And what I mean by that is so we have, like, say, a particularly haunted house and we have four or five TV shows go through and other paranormal investigators with their YouTube channels doing confrontations there. Is there ever a point where the impact of what they're doing is going to fade away or have they kind of permanently sullied that place unless there was some sort of other resonance brought in to counteract it? Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the TV shows I worked on, it was Kindred Spirits with Amy Bruni and Adam Berry. Like we went to Belvoir Winery and there was this thing in there that seemed very much like an aggregor or, or a thought form in the sense that it was giving it was becoming whatever we talked about or thought about. And so if I was talking about Amy, it would act like Amy. If I was talking about Adam, like it would just be whatever. It didn't know what it was. And so we brought all these people in who had lived there and worked there. And we did kind of this joint group intentional experiment of like just filling the building with love and hope. But then we also knew like, as soon as the television show aired, People were going to go there because they saw it on television, knowing that this thing is in there and will react however you think. And they're going to charge it back up with whatever they want. So I don't I don't think there's a real expiration date. Like, I think that whether the thing stays in there or people manifest more because they saw it on television, uh, because people continue to hunt the place. When I first went to Waverly Hills in the 90s, it wasn't very haunted. And now it's like one of the most allegedly haunted places in America. And I think that that's because people go there and investigate it. There's people there right now investigating it. And not everybody is, I want to talk to you. I want to help you solve your problem. I mean, there's probably someone in there this week that's like going to want to punch a ghost in the face. It's it's almost like uh, the image I get in my head is it's almost like walking over the same spot of carpet over and over again. Eventually, you'll wear it down to the baseboard uh, yeah. as people are coming in there and walking over that patch. They are kind of scraping away surface reality to re reveal whatever's beneath it. Kind of makes me think yeah. of we we talked about or uh, we read. I don't know if you've read this, but we read uh, on the show Demon of Brownsville Road by Bob Kramer about the demon of brownsville roadhouse in pennsylvania and throughout that book it's like it got it got worse the more people came into the house and the more that he tried to exercise the demon until like he had his one final plan and everything went through right but 
it, 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 it's like the idea of it gets worse before it gets better. But in, in this case, if it's not actually getting better, it's just going to continue to get worse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you think that, uh, there are, I don't know how to, I guess I'm how to phrase this. So do you think it's all what we bring to the situation or do you think that there are entities out there that sort of bring their own flavor to the mix? Like something that is innately X and it is, it is actively perpetuating whatever that resonance is, or is it entirely what we bring to the table? I think that there are entities out there that are independent and that have their own realities and their own experiential personalities. I just think that sometimes in the paranormal community, we get too caught on applying humanness to non-human things. One of the first paranormal television shows I ever worked on paranormal state back in the early late two thousands. And some, one of the people on the show said, uh, do you remember what it was like? Um, or no, they said something to the effect of like, um, we're trying to talk to the person, uh, who was here. And I said, you're trying to talk to what was the person. It's not the person anymore. Like if we're talking to ghosts, if we're going to assume ghosts are dead people, then their humanness was in their past. They're no longer that thing. And, and sometimes at lectures, I talk about the fact of like the six-year-old me doesn't exist anymore. I exist, but the six-year-old me doesn't because I have new experiences and I've learned things over the course of my life. And so I, I, John is still here, but I am constantly changing. And so when I make, if, if I were to make the transition into the spirit realm and now I experience the world and I see it without eyes and I hear it without ears and I experience the, the kinesthetics of it without touch, that's going to radically transform who John is. Right. Like I might remember my six-year-old self, but I don't experience the world as my six-year-old self. And so if I'm a ghost of John, like I might remember what it was like to be human, but I don't experience the world like that anymore. That's interesting because you're right. Like too many people who are like going into any kind of paranormal investigation, try to apply human nature to something that is innately not human. Well, and I think that's also a difficulty that we've seen come up often uh, with paranormal investigators, mm-hmm. not just regarding ghosts, but trying to forset, trying to say a, uh, attribute human logic to the behavior of UFOs. Yeah, we talk about that all the time because or, uh, it's they are if if we're assuming that they are not human, right? Which let's just go by that logic. Then why are we trying to apply the same logic? that we go to, to them because they don't, they clearly don't follow the same set of rules. Maybe they just want to give us bland pancakes. You know, (laughs) it's possible. But the thing is too, right? Like, but that's a, that's what you just said is great. Like we apply our logic to them. Human beings are notably terrible at understanding the motivations of other human beings. You can have someone sitting up in front of you and not know what their motivation is or what they're thinking or how they're going to react 
that goes terribly in many situations with a physical human being sitting in front of you. And now you're dealing with what might be interdimensional, quasi-dimensional, dimensional beings that exist unchronologically locked, like throughout time and space. And you're like, well, they would be nice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe it's just some nice wishful thinking. If they project it enough, they'll get, you know, their UFO in the White House and they'll get to go fly in the fly in the saucer. I, I like to imagine they are as baffled by us as we are by them. I, I like to imagine that most UFO flybys are just them going, what the fuck is that, though? <laughs> yeah, it took, for sure. It took them six years to figure out grapes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing a bunch of grays standing around like a bowl of green grapes and they all have like long metal pointers and they take turns like reaching out and like prodding at the grapes. Right. And the other thing is too, like we always like people in the paranormal and the supernatural and occult communities, like we always talk about like the trickster energy and like, but the, the reality is, is it really doesn't have to be trickster energy. Like no one on earth really knows what the fuck is going on. And, and if we do apply logic to these, ultra-dimensional, dimensional creatures unchronologically locked, if they don't know what the fuck is going on, then yeah, it's going to seem like everybody is tricking everyone, And but that's really just because we're all fumbling through reality trying to figure out what the hell is happening. Sometimes we poke things with a stick, sometimes we hug a tree, like sometimes shit just <laughs> goes wrong. And if you're like, well, there's an overall game plan to it, like, maybe not. Maybe they're just as confounded as we are. I, I think I like that idea better. I don't like the idea of that they have some grandmaster plan because that's less fun than them just going, I don't know what the fuck these these little people here are doing, but I'm going to find out because that's the same thing we're doing. I mean, some of my, my favorite ghost stories I've ever heard, the ghost looked just as shocked to see the person as the person <laughs> was to see them. And that yeah. those stories always make me wonder if what if ghosts aren't dead people? It's like other uh, time periods bleeding through or something like that. Mm. Yeah, I think I talk about that at my lecture a couple times, which was if we if we if ghost hunters kept really copious notes as much if they really were as nerdy as they say they are. And we had all of this information from all of the times that you investigate these super allegedly haunted locations. This house has been haunted for 120 years. If people had kept records for 120 years. We might realize. A lot of the old ghost stories are voices in the dark, weird floating lights, weird shadowed figures moving through the location. And and then we go a hundred years later to investigate because of that, those claims. And we walk around in the dark and talk really quietly to each other and look like shadowed creatures. And we're holding equipment that has little lights on it. And like, maybe the people in the past are just seeing us walk around the house doing investigations. They're like, what the fuck is going on? Something wants me to talk to it. It's got this red light that floats around. It keeps like <laughs> pushing this like weird light. These lights are blinking and, and they, they, they all sit around in the dark, like, and maybe we're the ghosts that we're investigating. That's hilarious. That That's I love that theory. I, I love I, that. Now, now, if we ever go actually start looking at haunted houses, we'll have to be those nerds. Yeah. We'll have to take notes like that. <laughs> I mean, I had every intention of making making sure that we took uh, ludicrous notes because uh, I don't want to forget anything that we do and yeah, with, I will otherwise. With our Swiss cheese brains, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah. um, so on the topic of, I mean, we brought up uh, kind of the television paranormal investigators. Um, and in the book, you do talk about, you know, some of the bad trends that we've seen uh, among those shows, confrontations being part of that. 
uh, do you think that there is any shows out there right now that are doing it better or are right? Uh, Do you see that we are moving in a proper direction? And if not, how could we? Uh, There are shows that shows have gotten some shows have gotten better. Um, I I enjoy that Kindred Spirits shows Amy doing some research before Mm -hmm. going into a location. That's like a big like it's all very incremental baby steps with television. The, the, the real, the reality of shows is that the best thing that they do is they generate conversation between friends and people who have a a shared interest. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they should be used as like great examples for investigation. It took, um, like the society for psychical research, which was studying ghosts in the 1800s, The first time, like, so I talked about them on an episode of Ghost Stalkers in 2014, and we showed the symbol for the Society for Psychical Research, and we showed William James, and we showed Henry Sidgwick a picture of them. That was the first time in, on any paranormal reality show that they, the Psychical Research Society was ever mentioned. And it, so, like, wow. if you look between 2002 when Ghost Hunters started and 2014 with Ghost uh, Stalkers, when I mentioned that, like there's a 12 year span of time where no one hundreds of thousands of hours of paranormal reality shows and no one talked. It's these tiny incremental steps. And now it gets mentioned. And like I said, Amy and Adam start to show investigative like research at libraries. And so people all of a sudden want to go to libraries instead of just running in the house with flashlights, which is what happened after ghost hunters, ghost hunters aired. Everybody got flashlights and EMF meters and then just burst into homes and abandoned locations to Mm -hmm. investigate because that's what they saw. And it's taken 20 years now for people to be like, oh, I should go to the library first and look up records and do microfiche. And that almost seems now when I talk to people, they're like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do research. So there has been incremental steps in, in changing things. I think things are getting better. But again, as you get more well-informed people who really challenge the status quo and the ideas of paranormal and supernatural and high strangeness phenomena, as you have people telling networks, I'm not going to say X, you, you're not going to get me to act this way on camera. As people start to stand up to producers because they want to provide better content, the producers will not put you on the air for doing that. And they will find the people who will do and say anything to put on the air. And there are tons of people who will say and do anything for, to be on television for 30 minutes. So it's a slippery slope. What's funny is like, I, I like kindred spirits. Like I've watched, I think I've watched the first three seasons of that show. Now been trying to play catch up for a while. Um, but uh, like one of my that I think the fact that they do research was my the thing that actually drew me into the show because I was like I'm not mm-hmm. interested in just watching another just another any old ghost hunting show, but the yeah. fact that they did research and that it's not always just your your grandma that they tell you that's in the house they're like well it could be this it could be this it could be this so there's a a list of potentials that they then go through or at least show them going through some of it is what drew me into the show because I was like, okay, that feels like how it actually should be on a, you know, a much faster scale. Well, honestly, like for for example, Hellier is another good example where you see at least a bit of the research. I remember Mm -hmm. watching that. I remember having the thought, well, Hey, 
I I like research that, you know, why, yep, why have I not seen this before? Because uh, the yeah. other elements of that, Grant, when you were talking about, you know, breaking into people's houses with EMF readers and flashlights, I had super embarrassing flashbacks to my college time and the college ghost hunting group where we would uh, descend on Riverside Cemetery in Mount Pleasant. Um <laughs> wake up all the ghosts and then be surprised when they're like mad although i will say this i will say this i saw my first uh apparition there which was cool although i don't know if it's you know, more of an orb it was a glowing ball of plasma that floated over the path in front of us it was pretty cool um it was shuffling back from the bathroom it had gotten up just, in the right, middle was, of the night and then it's just like who the fuck is what well, uh, that's actually something i've always wanted to see on one of those ghost hunter shows is they come in they start screaming and saying if you're out here come out and face me and then the ghost just bursts through the wall in full view and just goes what some of us work in the morning <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> i don't want to be subjected to ghost capitalism <laughs> if i'm dead i'm not getting another job uh, please don't tell me capitalism is on the other side too. I, <laughs> gotta work for your death. So, no. I, beyond ghost shows, do you? Uh, what? Are, I'm, I'm just just out of curiosity. I mean, I, there's also been with the disclosure buzz we mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of new television shows coming out in the UFO world. I'm thinking Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, the Showtime series, the Demi Lovato series that just came out, the HBO docu series. Now, yeah, now that uh, now you've you've like you said, you've seen this come and go. Is there a different uh, quality to the things that we're getting now as opposed to what has come about in previous iterations of this cycle? Uh, is there anything that you've noticed that is better or worse? Uh. So I've gotten into arguments with the UFO Twitter community. Hmm. Most of them have me blocked now because this really is like, this is the cycle for UFOs. This is what happens. Like something in the military happens. The government makes some kind of statement. Everybody goes bonkers about it. Celebrities jump on board. Everybody gets super excited. Within a couple of years, it burns out. It goes back to being a fringe topic. And then the government says something else about what they said 10 years earlier, and it starts all over again. And, and really, that's what's happening now. And the argument I get in with, mostly with the UFO people, is... They say, well, it's never been at this level before. Like it's everywhere. Like it's on every television channel. It's on every news station. And the the true argument to that is, and I, I have this with them and they dislike this argument, which is the last time something like this happened, which was in the 90s when it came around, like so like Larry King had like a three hour live special on UFOs and the X files was hitting super hard in the mid nineties and sightings was this UFO show that was on. And there were stories in, in like the New York times and the Detroit free press. And it was the same level of engagement. It's just, there were less mediums of engagement at the time, like to have three hours on Larry King live in the nineties was a, big fucking deal like that's crazy to do and to have multiple nbc doing ufo shows like primetime broadcasting two-hour specials about ufos like that was huge because there weren't as many outlets so those were the only outlets so it was as big as it is now now the new york times runs a story and it seems like everybody's interested in ufos but the reality is it's the new york times ran a story and now everybody's just linking to the new york times story or rewriting the new york times story yeah 
And I, I wonder how much of the, it seems like it's everywhere is just the nature of the social media explosion, you know, over the past 10 years or so. Well, especially because if you're someone already interested in UFOs, you're going to be a lot more cognizant of every time it's mentioned literally anywhere. Right. Also, like, um, you know, like we, we mentioned Demi Lovato um, de- for I would I'm I'm six years younger than you guys and I'm significantly younger than Mr. Tenney here. Um, but for a, an assigned female at birth person growing up in the early aughts, Demi Lovato was a goddess. And Demi Lovato coming back from her hiatus for for their mental health that they took and now coming back and saying, I'm a UFO experiencer. I saw a UFO in Joshua T- Tree Park and making their comeback centered around the UFO think yeah that makes it seem like it's everywhere it's like if marilyn monroe went on like a big live interview and was like oh yes i was abducted with by grays and i had a i had a lovely tea party with them that's that's what it feels like is to have demi lovato saying ufos are real and you're absolutely right and and but this is the 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 weird trigger of memory right because like there are these gaps between generations and I can only imagine like when John Lennon was going on the radio talking about seeing a UFO, like mm-hmm. there was John fucking Lennon on t- like the, of the Beatles in the seventies talking about seeing UFOs. And like, that must've been very similar to having someone like Demi, like, like say that all of a sudden they're an experiencer now. Mm-hmm. I had no idea John Lennon saw a UFO. That is, that is the generation gap. It, I did not know that John Lennon saw a UFO. John Lennon saw a UFO, made a huge statement about it. William Shatner was mm-hmm. rescued by a UFO. He got lost in the desert on a motorcycle, and UFO showed him the way out of the desert. I, I uh, have Mah- never heard Muhammad that. Muhammad Ali yeah. saw a UFO while he was jogging through Central Park in New York. This like, is- major people seeing UFOs. Alexander and, like, Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> it stole one of his cows. <laughs> I, I want... If I ever meet Lin-Manuel Miranda, the only thing I will ask him is why didn't you include a scene in your overrated musical about Alexander (laughs) Hamilton having one of his cows stolen and brutally murdered? Answer me. Don't you walk away from me. You think that restraining order is going to stop me? I want answers. (laughs) Don't be one of those people. Fine. Uh, The other thing is, too, that I I have to keep in my mind too when I when I'm talking to UFO people or they start generating arguments with me is that they'll say like but there have never been this many people in Congress who are interested there have never been this many people in the House of Representatives that have made statements about it and to that point they are correct but one of the reasons that they are correct is because most of those people that you're seeing in Congress in the House of Representatives are my age Mm -hmm. and they grew up watching Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica and loving Star Wars and watching UFO documentaries in the seventies. They grew up with it the same way I did. And if I was a congressperson right now, I would be talking about UFOs because it's a thing I'm interested in. People have interests. We always think of politicians as like, Oh, why would they ever think about that? I'm sure there are politicians that collect action figures and they don't talk about it or collect comic books. That's the generation that is in power right now. Absolutely. I also think we got to you got to take like on, I guess, on the flip side of that. Right. You got to take a look at the politicians themselves, too, to see how sincere they are about what they're pushing or if they're just riding the hype. 
you know, because they see a big movement from people uh, wanting it. Are they, is this something that they've expressed interest in previously, or are they just jumping on the, the, the bandwagon to be that politician that pushes through that, that legislation or whatever it might be uh, to get this right. on the books. Or just to have two more minutes on Twitter. E- exactly. And like, of, of course I can think of politicians off the top of my head right now that I, I'm not going to go into it, but that I don't trust worth a half a shit that are pushing UFO, the UFO agenda. But uh, so it's just, that's another thing that I always try to think about in terms of like, when it comes to like our politicians, you gotta, you gotta just, you gotta do your research. Yeah, they're going for clicks too. Yep, like, absolutely. Yeah. So, kind of on that note, I mean, we we're you know the comment of there are a lot of people in the House of Representatives right now who grew up on Star Trek and are interested in UFOs. Do you think that there's a possibility that we will ever break this cycle that will kind of reach a critical mass of interest that eventually we won't have to do this again in ten years? Or do you think this is largely we're we're in the washing machine we've been designed to be in? Yeah, I think it goes round and round. Um, when when you start to see a UFO movement or an alien disclosure movement that's actually worldwide, that will be interesting. That has never happened. Uh, like right now, the the idea that it's like when you look at all of the UFO news, the ninety nine percent of it comes out of the United States. There's a lot more Earth than the United States. Uh, if it was hitting all over the planet, if it was hitting the, the kind of subconscious and unconscious mind of the whole world, like that would be something interesting to see. That might break us out of the cycle of going round and round. But as long as it's always somehow tied to the American military and it's only American investigators the majority of who are cis white males who have the privilege to spend their time reading about UFOs instead of trying to just live from day to day. Like I I think we're just in the washing machine cycle. That's interesting because uh, one of my, one of my favorite like UFO go-to podcasts that I listen to is uh, I think they're from the UK, but they almost everything they report on, is from the U.S. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and this is going to be a bit out there, but um, is there, do you th- foresee there being any chance of the phenomenon doing it for them? Like, you know, again, we go back to that, you know, the dream scenario, the UFOs land on the White House lawn. Uh, or do you think that we're going to continue to, I mean, really, we have no reason to think that considering it's been pretty evasive so far and doesn't seem very interested in talking to us, but... Yeah, I mean, if I apply my human logic to that scenario, which I've done, because that's always the thing, right? Like, why don't they land on the White House lawn? And the example I've always given is that type of logic leads me to think about, like, when was the last time any of us have booked a ticket to fly to Japan to explain math to a cat, Right. Like, like Like it takes a lot of time, money, energy, effort to rearrange your schedule, to get the flight, to go to Japan, to find a cat on the street, to explain math to it. You know, you going there, you know, the cat is not going to understand the math. It's not going to care that you went to Japan. Like it's so far like behind you. You don't do it. You just don't. Yeah. And so like 
if that's a scenario with extraterrestrials, if they are that highly advanced that they seem like magic to us, it's kind of the same scenario as math cat. <laughs> math cat. Uh, I, that, yeah, we're all math cats now. Yep. <laughs> I'm just I'm just picturing trying to explain algebra to Murphy upstairs, and he would just start hitting me in the face with his paw. Yeah, Murphy is our 28 pound dumb cat who is wonderful <laughs> in every way, but he is just an idiot. I'm fairly confident he's part walrus. Yeah, or something. Uh, <laughs> or part hut. Yeah, it's definitely part hut, yeah. <laughs> he is He is so fat. We cannot yeah. stress to you exactly how fat he is. And he's lost weight. Yeah, he used oh. to be 33 pounds. Okay. Holy smokes. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. He, he's, a big, he's a big boy. He used to feel like a, a neutron star standing on your chest when he crawled on you in the middle of the night. And he's on a diet. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> but I was going to say really oh, quickly, ahead. too, since we're talking about cats, like it, my lectures and stuff, if people see my lectures or, or read the things that I write about, like I think animals like children are a great insight into high strangeness. Mm-hmm. I think that they experience the world in a, in a much different way, perhaps even more beneficial and pure to them than we do. You know, it's, it's very strange to me when I think about how often I hear human beings lauded as being the most evolved perfect creature on the planet. We're the most intelligent, we're the best and we're the brightest. And yet if you like, look at the evolutionary record, cats have been cats for like 26,000 years. Like they reached their perfect form 26,000 years ago. Same thing with dogs before we started breeding them. You know, whales have looked the same for millions of years. It seems like all the other animals got to their perfect form and their perfect lives. And we're still like, fumbling through it, trying to figure it out and messing up the whole planet while we're doing it. It doesn't seem like we're the greatest. It doesn't seem like we're the pinnacle. Yeah. I've I've heard some pretty convincing arguments that depending on how you measure, quote unquote, un- intelligence, that uh, killer whales may actually be significantly smarter than we are. They just, you know, live in the ocean and don't go to the moon because they're like, why would we do that? <laughs> Well, and, and also right. we don't really know how certain other entities, ha- yeah, how cognition happens for them. Like I'm thinking the massive fungal colonies, uh, f- you know, does a forest have consciousness, do trees? And in which case, how smart are they? We won't know because we don't they don't have neurons as we understand them to measure in any kind of measurable way. Yeah, I talk, uh, one of my friends who's a, one of my friends who's a botanist in California years and years ago, I called him because I'm vegan. And I told him I was reading about the consciousness and the rudimentary intelligence of plants. And I asked him, I was like, you've got to tell me that it's okay to eat plants. Like I have to eat something to exist. They can't like, they can't be screaming every time I eat a carrot. Like I just couldn't handle it. And he laughed and he said, no, you know, if you're talking about the intelligence of plants and, 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 and their concept on our world, Millions of years ago, plants became aware enough to know that they were non-locomotive and couldn't move by themselves. And so they planted their seeds inside of fleshy fruits and then grew delicious uh, fructose and sucrose around them to make us eat them. So we would eat them and poop their seeds out. So you're absolutely doing exactly what the plants want you to do. The plants are under have you under their control. Oh, God, we are 
just yep. food for yeah, the we're, we're heard. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been uh, I've been scaring these two for months by telling them, you know, humans show a lot of signs of domestication. I think we were domesticated by trees. And they're like, Jay, it's two in the morning. Go the fuck to sleep. How do you keep getting into my bedroom? And uh, then I go to and then now. Thank you, John Tenney, for confirming what I have been saying. I'm sorry I said your full name. That was insane. Oh, I don't care. <laughs> Huh. I oh, again, that's information I don't know what to do with at the current time, but it's now going to sit in my brain like a rock till two a.m. Eh, just live your life. Uh, I'll just be sitting well, there in my bed, staring at the ceiling, slipping into madness as usual. <laughs> well, like you said, Nick, when you were saying like we don't even really know, like talking to friends who are neurobiologists and neuroscientists, you know that they always talk about consciousness. They call it the hard problem because they can't figure it out, and the the real basic response that I get from most of them is that you're never actually going to figure the brain out because the only thing that you can study it with is another brain and you don't know how the brain that you're studying the brain with works. So when you're lost in the forest, you can't ask yourself for directions out. We don't understand how the brain works and yet we study the brain with a brain and we don't know how the brain works. So we're never going to really figure it out until we get outside of that system. We can't even really design technology because we're designing it with a brain with the intention to try and figure out how the brain works. You know, you know, something that I I do wonder is, I mean, I work in a uh, I work at a technology team um, within a large company and there's always a lot of talk about artificial intelligence. And we've had to read a lot of articles about it and things like that. Um. Could that be the way we end up solving consciousness is by creating a non-human brain that can solve it for us? I mean, I think that's the thing with AI that always interests me, too, right, is that if we create a conscious entity, an artificial intelligence that is conscious, it's not going to be able to prove it's conscious as much as you can't prove you're conscious. That's a good point. (laughs) Right. Like all of a sudden we've just made another thing that can say like, oh, yeah, I am here and I'm experiencing this stuff. And then to itself, it won't be able to prove that it's conscious and it will doubt its own reality and have all of the same foibles that we have. Because how do we how do we design something to be more evolved with us when we ourselves can't evolve there? We can't even wrap our minds around the idea of what that next step might be. How do you design an algorithm to can, I mean, I guess you could design a self like self-improving algorithm, right? But it's I just still, hope it doesn't go Skynet. Right. But and it's still going to be within the parameters of what we can do within our own technology, which right now right. is limited. Right. And I think it was, I think it was both Brian David Josephson and Stephen Hawking had a conversation about answering the big questions like consciousness and the, the size of the universe and why anything was created at all. And they got to a point in their conversation where they said, well, what if the answer is that there is no answer? The answer is you cannot answer these questions. One of the best ways for the question to remain unanswered and therefore fulfill its answer of not being answered is to develop a science which would tell you that you have the answer. That's a very difficult concept to wrap your head around, but that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, because so scientists spend all this time and all this money and they finally figure out the key to everything. And they come up with that one easy to write sentence that answers all the keys to the universe. And we all think it's right, but it's wrong. 
But since we think it's right, we stop looking. And then the answer, which cannot be answered, remains unanswered. You know, it's it's interesting um, because another thing we, we've talked about before uh, at length is the Western esoteric tradition and kind of this quest uh, for the perennial philosophy, the fundamental truth at the core of reality. And when you put it like that, it doesn't sound like we've come very far from that same fundamental question of trying to reach that you know, single answer. And I also see that coming up a lot in the paranormal community. Well, specifically the high strangeness side is we're always looking, well, Bigfoot is probably this coming from the same phenomenon as UFOs and ghosts and trying to connect them all. It all feels like it's coming from the same basic instinct to try to bring it all down to a root. Well, yeah. And to put it into a narrative, right? Because we love stories. So we want that beginning, middle, end. And we even think the universe has to be like that. Like maybe is that that's the archetype we're all working with. But, you know, some of the best stories that you get in modern times are non-chronologically like uh, they start at the end, like Rashomon style, or you see them from multiple perspectives and it doesn't have a traditional beginning, middle, end. It's just everybody's story all at once. So, during that particular discussion, I was uh, I was remembering something from from my undergrad classes. Um, my undergrad was in the academic study of religion. And one of the courses that I took on, it was it was it was just the general big seminal course on Christianity. And in one of our early sessions, our professor asked us to, as a class, discuss what we thought a Christian heaven would look like and like what that like what that sort of paradise afterlife would look like. And the one thing that he noted is that he'd been teaching that course for like 30 years at that point. He was he, it, doing it for a long time, basically. And he said that and he said that it was he pointed out the fact that almost all of us said, I want all of my questions answered. I want to know those big things like what is consciousness? Where does the universe end? What did the Big Bang look like? All of these ineffable questions that we as humans are can't grasp and that um, we might not be able to ever grasp. And he's to him, according to him, that was new. That was a very new thing that had been developing over like the past. He said like 15 ish years of people starting to insist that their version of paradise would include the answers to those ineffable questions. He's like, that was never that was never something that early Christian preachers promised other than, you know, the Gnostics. And they were all burned at the stake for doing that. <laughs> but right. he was and that's that's just that's that was that fascinated me is like, where did where did that yearning start to come from? And like, was that kind of was that kind of indigenous and unique to a bunch of privileged undergrad students in the Midwest? Or is that is that something that's rising across all of humanity is just like, no, no, no. If I have to be dead, you're going to answer some of you're going to explain some of this crap to me. If you have if I have to live a finite mortal life, whatever comes after needs to have the bonus of why is calculus like that? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that, you know, in, in a great version of the afterlife, like, sure, like I die and then I become this other thing that once was John and all of the mysteries of the universe are explained to me. 
And then the realization that I now exist in a completely new universe that has its own fundamental set of questions that I have to start on again. That's a good point. Okay, I'll explain to you how Earth works, but uh, you have to figure out heaven by yourself. You, Please you know, know. There, there's also a part of me that wonders if the reason that might be a new trend is because of Google, because we have, you know, for the first time, people are raised with this thought that they can search for whatever they want and get any information they want at all times. Uh, there's not an expectation of ignorance anymore. I mean, but yeah. that timeline would kind of match up because like he I and don't quote me on this. It was years ago, but he said it was like it was in like the past couple of decades that when he was first teaching the class back in like the late 80s, early 90s, that was not something that was ever said. And now apparently he hears it from the majority of his students when he gets that ex when he does that exercise with them. Well, I'm sure that. Like uh, like Nick said, it's got it's got to be part of the the Google because it's it's constant information overload well, for for everybody right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably something in there too. It's kind of a perfect storm with Google and and the internet. But in the 70s and 80s, with the rise of like the idea that you know, as a seventies kid growing up, like reading and had parents who were like endlessly reading self-help books and all of the like mantras that became so popular in the seventies of eighties of like, this universe is about you. Like you're the most important mm -hmm. thing in the universe. Take like, it's all you, 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 like you have a life to lead. You have things to do. It's all about you. And I think that that kind of almost selfishness, which develops and becomes things like prosperity gospels, you see the rise of like, like all of a sudden you have television preachers, like mm -hmm. telling people they can be rich. And it says in the Bible, this passage will tell you that you can be rich and you can have everything you want. Then you throw the internet on top of it. And all of the information that anyone could ever want is there. And now you have a rise of all these people who have an expectation that all of their needs will be met and all of their questions will be answered. Um, I read the results of a study that was uh, about 10 years ago that apparently they estimated 75 percent of middle school girls believe they will grow up to be famous. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, devastating. <laughs> something that you said kind of like uh, it, it's similar to something that I say a lot on uh on on our show and it's that we as like thinking like globally as a society we need to almost level up how like level up our consciousness because if you think if you look at it like you said a lot of the a lot of people they still are in that i'm the you know i'm the it's it's about me you know the i focused uh mentality and we need to really, we need to start looking at it more as like we as a global community or we as a community because, you know, for whatever reason. And it's, I had never thought about that from the influence of like the self-help books and things like that. Because if you look at all the books that I grew up around, it's all those books that you just, that you just mentioned, like yeah. the ones that, it, the especially the ones that's like, you can get rich and, you know, it's influent, especially the ones that are influenced by the church specifically and handed out by the, like handed out by the church that I went up, went to. And they even have these people come in and guest speak at the churches to preach, to preach their message of getting rich 
through whatever means it is like my when I was going through a a, a, a period of struggle through some of uh, many years ago, uh, that was my uh, my family solution was they gave me a book to help myself on how to manage my finances. And I'm like, this isn't going to help me because this isn't the problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Burn it to keep yourself warm when you're living under the overpass. Oh, right. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. So we have a couple more questions, uh, which we can go through pretty quick and give you back the rest of your evening. Uh, so the first one I really wanted to ask about was the desynchronized sleep manifestation experiment you talk about in the book, specifically because try as I might, I've yet to find a way to do it myself because um, – it's hard to not have electronics in the room when I need to wake up and my cell phone's my alarm clock. And also I have a fiance who sleeps next to me. Um, so my question is, my question is, have you heard from anyone who has tried it? And if so, did it work? What was their results? I've heard from a number of people who have tried it. Um, few have had results, but some have. Uh, I think that it works or in the way that it's laid out in the book, I'm laying out the way that it works for me. People have tried it their own ways and have had the people who ha have had it actually work, have done it differently than the way I explain it in the book. And they've explained to me like that they don't sleep alone, that they don't use the magnet on the VHS tape on their pillow, um, that they don't have to refrain from drinking alcohol. Uh, so I think much like a lot of high strangeness and weird phenomena, I think that the idea being planted in people's heads is enough to kind of spark the ability for the experience to happen. Hmm. So, I mean, would your view on high strangeness then be kind of of the model where it is a participatory event where we are bringing something to the table and interacting with something else kind of one plus one equals weird. Yeah. I, I, I discuss in, in my lectures a lot that, you know, I think that the only thing I've ever been shown by the cosmos is that it, in essence, it loves to play. It, it creates constantly and destroys and rebuilds and makes colors and shapes and sounds and planets and birds and, uh, stars and dolphins, like it just loves to do weird things. And I think that throughout our lives, like it taps us on the shoulder and in essence asks us if we want to play along and you can say yes and you can say no, it's your choice. But I think that we are participants in this little game. And when I say game and play, I always try and clarify this too at lectures. Again, I'm speaking a, a, about a very childlike idea of game and play when you're a little kid and a parent or an authority figure tells you to go outside and play they usually don't quantify it with rules and they probably they usually don't say like i want you to go outside here are the rules and you have to come back a winner they usually just say go outside and play and then they kick you out right and then you go outside and you play you hug a tree you talk to a dog you spin around in a circle you fall down you make up a game you laugh and then you come back in Winning and losing and rules, I think, are part of adulthood. And I think the universe, when it asks us to play, it just wants to engage with us and see that you're engaged in it. So it's almost like 
in a lot of ways, if you went, if you, if you broke down the phenomenon and you were able to put yourself into a more childlike mindset with it, that maybe if, if your goal was to be more open to it, putting yourself back in that mindset might open up even more possibilities because it's not really about solving the phenomenon because we all know, at least at this point, that's not going to happen. But the idea of just engaging with the phenomenon. You know, yeah, and that, I, I think that people lose that a lot. I think they lose by wanting to qualify and quantify everything and label and categorize it and answer it. I think people miss the whole point, which is you have a limited what seems to be a limited amount of time in body on this planet, on this very like surrounded by all these weird creatures with you. And it could be really fucking fun. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is want to have some fun. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I always, I always wonder sometimes I'm going to die, you know, still going to see the light and I'm going to get sucked up into the sky and I'll get up there and realize that I have to go to work in the morning. Cause this was like the equivalent of Westworld. I came here on vacation <laughs> right? <laughs> and I live in, I live in dread of that, that I'm going to leave my corporate work and go into corporate work. That is literally my nightmare. Yeah, no, that's hell. Yeah. It's pure hell. <laughs> well, again, the thing that I talk about in, in lectures is if you look at the entirety of existence, if you if you smash it down into what we seem to experience in our day-to-day lives, you have the majority of the time that you're awake and you're you, uh, and then you have these this these blip amount of times that are sleep and dreams, right? And in sleep and in dreams, there's all this weird shit that happens. You know, dinosaurs talk to little rascals and like just crazy stuff happens in your dreams. And then you go back to your waking state, who you actually are in the waking state. If you apply that to your existence as a human being, you had this long period of time when you didn't, when you weren't in a body, you have this long period of time on the other end, you have pre-birth, you're not in a body, you have death when you leave your body, and then you have this weird blip of time where all this weird shit happens. Our in-body experience is the dream of the thing that we really are on either side. You didn't exist forever before you came into body. That was that was where you're going back to. When people die, we always talk about them going home. We know that we're going back to what we actually were. We have, we're in this dream life state right now. Does this make any sense? Yeah, no, it I'm does. Saying? It, yeah, yeah. It, it, it weirdly reminds me of some of the stuff I've been reading about uh, the work of John Mack, specifically that he had several of his abduction patients who after their uh, regression therapy, they started referring to that other world as home. And he actually had to talk them back from suicide because they had this immense desire to return there once they were aware it existed. Right. I think the the because then people have asked me. So I also think this is one of the reasons that certain paranormal questions don't get answered. Like, is there an afterlife or is there a heaven? Do you go home? Do you become more of what you were before you were alive? And I think that that question remains unanswered and will remain unanswered because if we did have the answer, then as soon as things got difficult or hard or you had a struggle here, like you just cash out, right? Because there's something else. Uh, but it remains a mystery so that you can grow and you can evolve and you can work through the problems and you can find beauty and difficulty. And and if you had that answer, like there would be people who are like, I'm out. You know, it, 
it, it really makes me wonder if the stories that you hear about people who have a supernatural or paranormal experience and then immediately ignore it or forget it, if that's some sort of defense mechanism against that uh, sort of built in uh, switch that gets flipped to prevent you from looking too deep at something that might lead you to that that conclusion. Um, yeah. yeah, that that actually makes me think of um, because that's that's a big thing in Hindu and Buddhist schools is Buddhism schools is um well, why don't I just why don't I just take my own life and can't that can't that speed up my acceleration into exiting? Because, you know, in, in Buddhism, they in Buddhism and Hinduism, they believe that we're trapped in an in a cycle of reincarnation until we reach a certain level of enlightenment and exit it. And Buddhism believes in the cessation of existence, that there is nothing beyond this, that exiting samsara is you know, it's the secession of consciousness. Hinduism believes that our our Atman, which is our soul, is a piece of the true reality. And you're going to go back to that when you're ready. And the response that your guru, that your master is supposed to give you is n- no. Suicide is actually going to set you back because, yes, this body that you're in, this life that you're living, it's not you, but kind of like like Nick was saying, it's like you came here to learn something or do something or it, it doesn't even matter why you're here, or how you get here. Forcibly shedding your body is not going to get you the results that you want. It's actually going to create a new ripple of pain and that might anchor other people further to samsara. And as difficult as it is, and as much as you want to step out of this body and go to wherever it is you're supposed to be going, that is unfortunately not the way. And unfortunately, you you need to just stay here and you need to do the mental work with your meditation, with your puja, with your with with your everything. And that is so basically that community has an inbuilt religious in-text reason why that's not what you're supposed to be doing because they've they've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. They understand that that is a lot of people's knee jerk reaction, especially in the teenage years where they're a hormone bomb and they're angry and life feels like a prison anyway. And then their guru is telling them, well, it is a prison. But no, no, that's that's not how you get out of it. You have to you have to work and you have to claw and you have to do it the hard way because that's that's just how it is. I mean, every Every secret teacher that we've that we've studied so far is had a very similar message. Be it if you're trying to seek gnosis, if you're trying to seek samsara, if you're trying to seek nirvana, whatever the name is for 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 that end goal, it's always very similar in the pattern that you have to go to get there. And it makes sense, right? That it, you can't just cut it short because you've got to achieve whatever it is that you're meant to achieve, however you're meant to achieve it by whatever method you're trying to go about. Yeah. If, right? if, if that method worked, we'd all just do it. Exactly. Like. Right. And the, the, I mean, when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14, I had this discussion with a, a minister that I knew and he, like he broke it down to me and he said like, John, if you were born on a planet of smooth glass and you were there all by yourself and it was just a completely flat plane or a round planet of smooth glass He's like, you would walk and walk and walk 
And then eventually you would beg for there to be like a mountain to climb or like a canyon that you could, or a rock that you could trip over or a tree that you could like hold on to. Like you would become so bored on a planet with no experience that you would, you would beg for someone to create an experience for you. Luckily we're born onto a planet where obstacles are thrown in front of us all day, every day without rhyme or reason. Mm -hmm. And we complain about them when the reality is, is they're there so that not only do we not get bored, but so that we can appreciate when the ground becomes flat glass again. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, that's heavy. That's <laughs> su it's super heavy, but it that's, that's such an awesome, like, outlook because you can take that and put it into any scenario and be like and see like that's the silver lining to almost any negative scenario right it's like well at least i'm not bored yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, although there are a couple times i could have stood to be a little more bored to be yeah. completely frank yeah um, <laughs> um okay well we did have a, one more question we wanted to ask you and it's a pretty simple one when the hell are we going to see volume two because we're dying to cover it and read it so volume two is anecdotal weirdo, which are all just weird things that have happened to me over the past 30 some odd years. Excellent. Uh, but the third book, which is analytical weirdo, uh, I, I think we might have discussed this at Michigan Paracon. So theoretical weirdo is an experiment. Did I tell you guys that? Did I, tell you I, all I that? remember I remember hearing you talk about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just not sure if it was something we talked about or if I've, I heard you talking about it on a podcast or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the book is an experiment, which I don't explain until the third book comes out. Um, this is actually a really great part of the experiment doing this podcast. It's, it's, yeah. it's an extra extra bonus that I didn't realize I was going to be able to do. But uh, yeah, there's an experiment. There's a couple actually hidden within the book itself. The way that the book was written, the way the chapters are laid out, like everything uh, is part of an experiment. So anecdotal weirdo was supposed to come out in December, but I'm finishing my book on um, these alien encounters that happened in Michigan. So that book, which is just a, a journal of what I'm calling formanauts, uh, that will come out in December. Analytical or excuse me, um, anecdotal weirdo will come out probably in February or March. And then Analytical Weirdo will come out next December of 2022. So it sounds like that's two books of yours that we're going to have to cover. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because they're both in our in our wheelhouse. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you come out with a cookbook, I can't guarantee we'll read it. Although I, I'd, um, read a, I, I'd read it. I'd read it. Years ago, I still have somewhere saved on my computer a cookbook that I wrote. It's called... <laughs> it's called it's the, the name of the cookbook is I hope this doesn't kill you. And it's, it's, it's uh, cooking, cooking recipes from a man who's lived alone his whole life. Okay. You have already made me a liar. Cause I would read that. I, I, I read absolutely that on the title alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. We hope we can have you back again sometime. Uh, we all really enjoyed the book and to all of our listeners at home, please, please, please go out and buy theoretical weirdo. Well, volume one, it is a lot of fun take part in the experiment and now i need to go deconstruct this book connect some pieces with yarn and go crazy for the next two months trying to figure this out yeah and uh open open invite to both you and jessica if you guys either ever want to come on to come on do another interview show or come on to our regular show and break down a book with us it'd be a great time yeah absolutely i had so much fun thanks for having me thank of course you. all right well thank you have a good night i'll uh, talk to you later all right bye <laughs>